Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania, proclaiming the historic faith and the uncompromising grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, check out our website, graceanglicanonline.com. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you have not left us alone, but you have come to us in Jesus, and you have still come to us by your Holy Spirit and in your scriptures. So we pray that by your Spirit you would quicken this word and illuminate it to our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, Wendy and I love coming here. Uh, not just because it kind of reminds us of home, because it's always hot when we come here, but, uh, but it, it, we always get such a, a nice reception, and we know that you folks are praying for us and supporting us, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a real joy. I'm going to spend some time looking at, at Paul's letter to the Romans, but uh, it, this, is, this is one of those parts of Scripture. That it's, it's like a cigarette package. It ought to come with a warning label. Uh, Romans, on the one, one hand, is very difficult. It's the longest of the letters in the New Testament. That's why it comes first of all the letters. The, Paul's letters are basically in order of length. So it's long, and it's a compact, extended argument. It's not like reading a gospel where you have stories, and you have interludes, and you can take a breath. Paul's letter to the Romans just, it just keeps going, and it, it's tough to hold on to all this extended argument. But on the other hand, uh, the letter to the Romans is really spiritual dynamite. It's dangerous. Uh, whenever the church pays careful or even any attention to this letter, amazing things seem to happen. For example, in, in the late 4th century, the man who would later be called St. Augustine, after living a rather godless life, to say the least, finally came to a point of crisis, and he heard a voice telling him, take up and read. And what he took up and read was a portion of Paul's letter to the Romans, and his life was turned inside out, and he trusted Christ, and he found forgiveness. Years later, more than uh, a thousand years later, a German Augustinian monk, important that he was an Augustinian. You see what happens when you read Romans? People start to name things up. Uh, named Martin Luther, spent most of a year lecturing on this letter. And the result was what we now call the Protestant Reformation. The message Luther found in Romans was a message about a merciful God. And it not only changed him, but it led to an upheaval in the whole church and a return to first principles. The grace of God found in Christ's work done for us on the cross to be received as a gift by trust in that gracious God. 200 years later, a young John Wesley heard the message of Romans secondhand. He went, very unwillingly, he said, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. 
about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So beware. This is a dangerous letter, and paying attention to it, hearing its message, could change your life. Now, we won't be reading all of Romans today. I, I suspect that when the people in the church in Rome first got this letter, they said, oh my goodness, it's going to take us a couple of Sundays to read this. Uh, but they probably read most of it through, and they probably read it through numerous times, trying to get everything that Paul said. People often say, do you think the first readers of this letter understood it? Well, do you think the first hearers of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony understood it all? No, it's dense, it's full of things. It has to be reread and it has to be lived in and lived out to, to understand the fullness of what's going on in this letter. But we're, we've just read one little passage, 11 verses, but we're in luck because these 11 verses really get to the heart of the matter. In many ways, uh, these verses give us the core of the message. And the core of the message is very appropriate for the Sunday after Trinity. It's about the love of God. It's about Christ's suffering for us on the cross. And about, it's about the Holy Spirit's work in a person's heart. But Paul, even though it's, it's a tightly packed and extended argument, Paul is assuming and alluding to, time and time again, a big story, a narrative. Paul's letter, which is a discourse, assumes a story about the world and about God and about us. And so in this letter, Paul talks about God's creation of the world and especially his creation of the first human beings. Later in the fifth chapter of Romans, he will talk about the first man. Who is that? Adam. He talks about Adam. He talks about what happened with Adam and that with Adam, sin and death entered the world. God made a good world. God is a good God. So what God makes is good. And so he made a good world, an ordered world. If we read Genesis chapter 1, we find God creating things in order. There's a structure to the creation which is glorious. But it falls apart because of rebellion, because of what human beings do. And so Paul reminds us that our first parents turned against God, rebelled against him. Uh, and so Paul talks not only about the creation in this book, but he talks about the fall. Uh, and it, even before the fifth chapter, he talks about the fall. In the third chapter, he spends the entire chapter talking about sin. Let me read just a little bit of the third chapter. The whole chapter, uh, it has the same tone to it, but I'll read just a few verses. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged 
that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Then he quotes numerous biblical passages. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He keeps going. But then at the climax of chapter 3, he says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, the glory of God was God's intention for the world. It's still God's intention for the world. God created the world so that he could inhabit it, so that he could come and be with his people. In Genesis, we, we find this remarkable, very little short passage in which it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is what God wanted. God wanted fellowship with his people. He wanted to be close to them. He wanted his presence to fill the earth. He wanted his glory to fill the earth. But we have sinned and fallen short of that glory. Uh, and so, the book continues, God loved the world so much that he sent Abraham. That's chapter 4 of Romans. What shall we then say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Paul says in Romans 4, verse 1. You see, Abraham is the beginning of God's good news, the beginning of the answer to human sin. He chooses a people, he chooses a family, and through that people he is going to reach out to the world. And in, in Genesis 12, verse 3, God promises Abraham. He says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, Abraham, the whole world will come to know the glory of God. The whole world will come to know the goodness and the love of God. But you've read, you've probably read the book. I mean, it's a big book. You know, that's the Old Testament part. It's, it's a lot of the book. And as you read it, you find that the people of Israel, although sometimes they try they fall over and over again. You see, Israel is in Adam, just like all of us. Israel is sinful as well. They do not live up to her vocation. And so Paul underlines, all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike. And this is a problem. It's not only a problem for us. It seems it's a problem for God. Because God promised that through Israel... All the nations of the earth would be blessed. But now Israel is not living up to its vocation. And so the problem is, how is God going to fulfill his promise? Paul later in the letter says, the, the, uh, the calling and the gifts of God are irrevocable. God chose Israel for this purpose. He's going to use Israel for his purpose. So did he make a mistake? Did he have to turn to plan B? Was the promise to Abraham wrong? Did God fail? Did God made a make a mistake in choosing Abraham? No. The God who gave Abraham and Sarah is a God who raises the dead. Again, that's what chapter 4 is about, Romans chapter 4. 
Here, uh, Paul says, although Abraham and Sarah are as good as dead, because they're nearly as old as me and Wendy, still God has promised them that they're going to have children, that they're going to have a family, and through that family he's going to bless the world. Uh, They are not quick to believe God. Sarah especially has a little problem believing this. She laughs, and so they call their son Yitzhak, Isaac, which means she laughed. But God is a God who does miracles. He raises the dead. He brings life where there was no possibility of life for Abraham and Sarah. The people of Israel were as good as dead as well. The people of Israel failed in their vocation. God warned them in Deuteronomy, if you don't obey the law, you will go into exile. Choose life, choose blessing, not curse. But they chose curse, so they they went into exile. They're as good as dead. But God sent his son to be Israel's Messiah. And that's the point of the first few verses of Romans. Paul says in the first verses that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David, the king of Israel, according to the flesh, and declared to be son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. God said he would use Israel, and now he's doing it. But Israel is narrowed down to one point now. Israel is narrowed down to one faithful Israelite, the true Messiah, the true king, the true representative of the people. Just when it looked like the plan had failed, God sent his son. But but Paul's not finished with the problem. Because, you see, Paul was not... uh, did not respond to this message right away either. Paul heard the preaching of the first Christians and he rejected it. He rejected it so much that he went around trying to get them arrested, thrown in prison, and even killed. You see, Paul could not have believed this message because Jesus, who the Christians were saying was the Messiah, was killed on a tree, a shameful death. he's, He's been excluded from the possibility of the kingship of Israel. Not only excluded from the possibility of being the Messiah, he's cursed, according to Deuteronomy. Cursed be him who hangs on a tree. It's no wonder that Paul said these Christians are blaspheming. He was executed, he was put to death, but Paul has an experience which changes his life. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? Paul didn't think he was persecuting Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead. He thought he was persecuting Christians. But Jesus identified himself so much with his people that he can say to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul learned right there that God raises the dead. He has raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that's Romans chapter 4, and it brings us up to where we are in chapter 5, in which Paul begins, Therefore, you see, because God made a good world and wanted to fill it with his glory, because we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, because Israel did not do its work, 
God sent his son Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has actually fulfilled his promise that through Abraham all the nations would be blessed. God has sent the seed of Abraham, Jesus the Christ, to fulfill his promise. Because in the strange work of God, the promise was fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Abraham's son and heir. We are made righteous by believing and trusting in him. And therefore, we have peace with God. Well, why did we need peace with God? Paul makes it clear. We needed peace with God because we were enemies. We, we had rebelled against God. Uh, he says it's later in chapter 5. He says, Adam sinned and so did we all. Uh, therefore, he says in verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned, we're all a part of that work of Adam. We are all a part of this rebellious humanity. Uh, and Paul says we're not only enemies of God, but we are too weak of ourselves to do anything about it. Verse 6 of Romans 5 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We were enemies, he says in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is enormously good news. Now, the passage has some difficult news as well. The passage talks about the wrath of God and that we are saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Uh, the wrath of God is a reality, and it, it's... You know, it's hard to say this because people don't think like this very much, but the wrath of God is really good news. Uh, the fact that God is angry should actually hearten us. Uh, my, I'm going to digress a little bit. My wife and I live in the western part of Ethiopia, right next to the South Sudan border. And since December 2013... We've had a civil war right next to us. Uh, when we got to the Gambela region of Ethiopia, there were 300,000 people living in that region. Now there are almost 700,000 people because it's been filled. The population has more than doubled because of refugees who've come across the border fleeing civil war, and it's a pointless civil war. It's about politicians fighting over money and power. It's not about policy or ideas or right and wrong. It's about two sides who are both pretty evil. So it's, it's pretty bad news. If I was God, I'd be really angry. It's injustice. It's unrighteousness. It's not the way the world was made. God made a good world, and we have ruined it through hatred. Well, not only do we have a civil war next door, but we also have a group of people who seem to come across the border every once in a while and destroy villages, steal cattle, and kidnap children, and then disappear back into South Sudan. A couple of years ago, in one of these raids, a couple of hundred people were killed, another hundred people or so uh, 
injured terribly. Uh, more, about a hundred children were kidnapped and thousands of cattle were stolen. This is evil. And God is angry about that evil. Just this week, I found out that one of our good friends in Gambella has, is HIV positive. It's not her fault. It's her husband's fault. He's in jail now. He's HIV positive as well. But she's been infected by this disease even though she did nothing wrong. The world is disordered, and God hates that. The wrath of God is good news because the wrath of God says... This will not go on forever. One day God will judge. He will turn the world right side up. He will make all things right. The earth will be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And we are witnesses of the beginning of that in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the first sign that the end times have come and that God is going to change everything. Yes, it's been 2,000 years. Yes, it seems a long time to us. But we live in hope, as Paul says. Yes, we live in suffering, he says. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Okay, well, so this passage does talk about the wrath of God, but that's not the main theme about God in this passage. The main theme about God in this passage is, as we just read from verse 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts, that God has shown his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have peace with God because of what God has done for us. The first thing we learn about God in this passage, the primary thing we learn about God is that he loves us. It's not that God wanted to kill us, but Jesus got in the way and stopped him. It's that God made a decision to come to this earth in the person of his son, to, to condescend to our level and give his life for us. It's not that God loved the world so much that he sent somebody else. It's that God loved the world so much that he came in himself. So that's the first thing we learn. God loves us so much. The second thing we learn is that because of this love, Jesus has come to die for us. Paul says this all through the letter in different ways. He, every time he talks about the death of Jesus, he says he uses different words. It's not, it, it's not that he has some kind of pat formula that he repeats every time. But he, he tries to find different ways to express this incredible reality. And so uh, in verse 24, he says, we are, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You see, Christ is a sacrifice for sin. The, 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 first Jew, the Jews who believed in Jesus first understood this idea of blood sacrifice. So did, so did the Greco-Roman world. So do our African brothers and sisters. They know what a sacrifice is. It's a way of reestablishing communion with God. It's a way of 
healing a, a broken relationship. We don't have so many blood sacrifices in our world, but it's still there in the background, isn't it? Uh, there's a movie you need to see. It's PG, so maybe you don't all need to see it. It's called Gran Torino. Has anybody seen that movie? This is an amazing film. Uh, it's about a, a curmudgeon, uh, to say the least. He's a nasty man. He's a racist. Uh, he's a veteran of the Korean War. It's certainly wounded him to have been through that kind of experience. He smokes, he drinks, he cusses. Uh, his wife has, has died. He's really angry. And his neighborhood is being taken over by Asian immigrants, and he doesn't like it. But he refuses to leave. All the other white people have fled the neighborhood. He stays because it's his place. And he gets to know the Asian neighbors who move in next door. He gets to know the young man who is the son of this family. And he realizes this, man is, this young man is being brutalized by gangs and being forced into a life that he doesn't want to be part of. And he makes a decision. He discovers that he's sick and that he doesn't have long to live. And so he makes a decision about what to do with the rest of his life. It's, I'm, I'm going to give away the film, so I'm really sorry about that. But it's an old film, so it's your own fault for not seeing it. <laughs> he, he, he goes and confronts the gang. And they know he's got a gun. They know this guy is armed. And so he goes... And he confronts them in front of their house. And at the, at the climactic moment, he reaches in for what looks like, he's, he looks like he's reaching for the gun. He's actually reaching for his lighter to light a cigarette. And they open fire and they kill him. And he, the, the film is brilliant because as he falls back, his arms go out. It's a clear image of Christ on the cross. See, he wasn't going to hurt them at all. But he forced them into showing their hand. And because they killed him, they are taken off into jail, and the young man goes free. The young man doesn't have to join this gang, doesn't have to have his life ruined. So, you know, as Paul says uh, in, in this passage, uh, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, you know, it's possible to think that uh, perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. That's what the hero in that book does. He dies for somebody that he thinks is good. But he gives his life. People are aware. Somewhere in the back of our minds, in the depths of our hearts, we are aware that love, real love, is self-sacrificial. We are aware when we see Christ hanging on the cross that he died for us, for our sins, that God came down and gave himself for us. The cross is no simple decoration that we put around our neck or hang on a, on a, on a church. It's an instrument of torture and execution in the first century. It's not a pleasant thing at all. But that symbol of suffering for us has been turned into joy because it was God's means 
of bringing us back to him, of reconciling us, of making us who were his enemies into his friends. So this passage tells us about the love of God. It tells us about the love of God in the cross. And it tells us that the love of God is poured into our hearts. There's an ambiguous phrase in, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Well, does that mean our love for God or God's love for us? Uh, our love for God, of course, is, is what the first and great commandment is about. It's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, we are supposed to do. It's what Israel was commanded to do. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. But you see, we're incapable of doing that. And so God does an amazing thing. He pours his love into our hearts so that we can love him. We, we can't drum up love for God. We can't invent it. But God has given us the Holy Spirit to, to transform us, to change us, to, to give us the ability to respond to him and to, to say thank you, to be grateful for what he has done for us. It's God's love. God's love seen in his plan. God's love seen in his coming down in Jesus. God's love in the decision to take human flesh and to become sin for us on the cross and God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. And he's talking about this because he knows that this message can transform the world. And through this message, and through this, this, uh, this action of God, one day the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Amen.